Jesus promises us peace. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. And yet, there doesn't seem to be a lot of peace. Where is the peace that Jesus promises us? We saw a lack of peace in the first reading we heard today from the Acts of the Apostles. There we heard about the Council of Jerusalem, which was this very pivotal moment in early church history where some people in the church were saying, no, 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 no. All of these new converts to the faith who are not of Jewish descent, they need to follow the whole Mosaic law. They need to be following the whole law just like us good Jews. And then the other part of the church was saying, no, 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 no. I don't think so. We've all been saved by grace, not by the law. We've all been saved, Jew and Gentile alike, by faith in the Lord Jesus. So as we heard in that reading, there arose no little dissension and debate. There was a kind of lack of peace, it would seem. There was division in the church, disagreements. There were some people on one side and others on the other. And they were all trying to figure out what God's will actually was. What does God actually want? What does the Holy Spirit want? Dissension, debate, lack of peace. That was what was happening. Where is the peace that Jesus promised? This can be kind of confusing until we take like one look at church history. Because when you look at the history of the church, you find out in short order that there have been countless moments just like this. Pretty much every step of the way. There's been no little dissension and debate. There's been questions that the church has asked over crucial elements, components of theology. There were questions very early on about the nature of Jesus. Who is he? What does it mean for us to believe in him? What does that mean that he is truly God? Is he truly man? Was he just kind of an appearance or some sort of ghost or spirit? These are all questions that over these questions there arose no little dissension and debate in the early church. One of the biggest heresies in history was Arianism. Arian was a man who said that the Logos, the Word, you know in the beginning of the Gospel of John where it says in the beginning there was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God and then it says the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Well, that Word, that Logos is the Greek word, he said that it was just a creation of God, that it was the greatest creation of God, but that it wasn't actually divine. But then the church was like, no, we need to have a debate over this. We have to have conflict over this question. We need to fight this out and, and then come to find and discover through the work of the Holy Spirit, the truth that no, the Logos is not a creation. There was never a time that he did not exist. Jesus is true God and true man. He's consubstantial with the Father. That's what it means in our creed, that he is of one substance, the divine substance. But that was a big fight. And believe it or not, most of the bishops in the world at that time were Arian. Think about that for just a moment. Just a handful of faithful bishops. 
It's amazing, I think, that, that we believe what we believe today. And if it was just up to human initiative and how many people decided this was true over against that, then we would all be Aryans right now. We would not be Christians. We would be heretics. But because the Holy Spirit is alive in the church, we believe the truth. Another big fight that we went through as a church was Pelagianism. Have you heard about this guy, Pelagius? Well, he said that basically we can be holy on our own. We just have to work really, 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 really hard. Just put some elbow grease into it. What's your problem? You should be holy by now. You just got to work at it. God will kind of sprinkle a little bit of grace on top and maybe help you out a little bit, but mostly just through the good example of, of Jesus and the saints. But really, it's up to you to get saved. And the church, especially St. Augustine, was like, no, we need to fight about this. We need to have some conflict and some dissension, no little dissension and no little debate. We need to hash this out and get to the bottom of the truth. And what did St. Augustine teach us? In alignment with all of the scripture and in alignment with the Holy Spirit, that we are saved by the free gift of God's grace. That grace inspires us even to desire God in the first place. We can't, of our own efforts, earn anything. Jesus told us, apart from me, you can do nothing. We cannot save ourselves. But that was a big fight, and that demanded conflict. Another big fight was over Gnosticism. So the Gnostics were a group that thought that there was this kind of secret knowledge that only a few elite people had access to. And there were plenty of really crazy ideas that came out of this belief system. One of those beliefs was that the body is bad and that the spirit is good. That might sound a little familiar to us because there's a little Gnostic in all of us, but we have to resist that because the body is so important. And the, and the church knew this in her bones and she was willing to get into conflict over this question. And so people like St. Irenaeus in his book Against Heresy said, no, we do not believe this about the body. We believe that the word became flesh and dwelt among us and took up a real human nature. And by the way, this is not about some secret knowledge that only elite few super smart, super spiritual people have access to. No, our faith is for everybody. God has spoken to the entire world. He's given this revelation of his love and mercy and grace for all people. And everybody has access to that. We also had a, a really big fight, a big conflict, if you will, over the Protestant Reformation, didn't we? The church was torn apart. The body of Christ was shattered over fundamental questions about how we are saved, once again about faith and works, about the sacraments, about what it means for the church to have authority, about the Pope and the bishops. Over all of those questions, there was dissension and there was debate. And God raised up so many amazing saints in the Counter-Reformation, the movement that responded to those questions, and they helped clarify the truth 
through the action of the Holy Spirit in the life of the church. Now, without all of those debates and without a willingness to enter into conflict, I wonder if we would believe the truth today. I think that conflict is actually really necessary. It's needed because I know, I know that I am very tempted to just smooth things over and keep things very superficial. We can just sort of go on pretending that we all believe sort of the same thing. We act like if we're just nice with one another, polite with one another, and just get along in a superficial sort of way, that the church is in communion, that there is peace. After all, Jesus told us that he would give us peace. But is that the peace that Jesus is really talking about? I don't think so. In another place, Jesus tells us point blank, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. What does he mean by that? Well, it means that he came to separate truth from falsehood, and there will be conflict, and there will be division because of that. But he came that we may know the truth, and the truth will set us free. The peace that Jesus is offering us is a deep and abiding peace. It comes from true communion with the living God, with his heart with his teaching, with him. That kind of peace, the peace of the new Jerusalem descending out of heaven like we heard from the book of Revelation, the peace of heaven, that kind of peace is not the peace that the world will give us. It's not the kind of peace that we can create on our own. And it is certainly not the kind of peace that comes from ignoring problems and divisions over really important questions of theology. We try to avoid those conflicts at all costs, even at the cost of truth. We ignore those deep divisions sometimes, and, and we can allow heretical views to take root in our own hearts and in the hearts of others. And we can do it all in the name of keeping the peace. But that's not the kind of peace that Jesus wants us to have as a church. I just came across something on YouTube, a video with Jordan Peterson in it, and it was about the importance of conflict. And he said in that little video, I hate conflict, and I find it very stressful. I think we can all pretty much agree with that, right? I hate conflict, and I find it very stressful. But, he says, conflict delayed is conflict multiplied. Man, apply that to your family, to relationships in your life. Conflict delayed is conflict multiplied. Isn't that interesting? If we just delay the conflict, if we just say, no, it'll be okay, it'll all work out. Now all the Arians, they're fine. They'll eventually figure out that, that Jesus is really God. We don't have to tell them that. Oh, all of those Pelagians, ah, don't worry. They'll just exhaust themselves trying to earn their own salvation. And meanwhile, we'll just keep the peace and we will ignore the fact that they are heretics. The Gnostics, eh, we don't have to address that problem. That would be a little too confrontational, wouldn't it? So we'll just ignore it and we'll keep the peace. We won't tell them that they're on the wrong road. If we do that, 
If we delay the conflict, then the conflict will be multiplied. I think what Jesus wants to give you and what he wants to give me and what he wants to give our families and what he wants to give with all of his sacred heart to the whole church all around the world is true peace, deep peace, the peace that comes from being of one mind and one heart with God. We heard in that first reading that the elders decided to write a letter to the people who were in error. Those poor people were out of step with the Holy Spirit. They were out of step with the truth. And so the apostles wrote to them saying, basically, you know, someone has disturbed your peace. Someone has disturbed the peace of your minds, of your souls. And because that has happened, we want to help you and we want to direct you and we want to address that issue. We want you to be of one mind and one heart with the Holy Spirit, with God. So here's the actual truth, even if it causes division. And I think we have to do that as well today, especially since there are so many mixed up ideas all around us on a daily basis, every second, it seems. We're bombarded. And some of those ideas have wormed their way into the church in some places. So what are we going to do? Are we going to just keep the peace? Maybe you've seen the recent news about Archbishop Corday Leon over in San Francisco. He wrote a pretty tough message. If you've seen it, you probably know that. To a politician who actively and publicly defies what the church believes about abortion and about the sanctity of life. And yet, as he has shared with her over and over, she still presents herself for Holy Communion, which basically claims, yes, I am in union with the church and all of its convictions. I believe I am of one mind with Christ. That's what it means when we come up to Holy Communion. We're in union with him and we assent to him and to his church. And so the Archbishop in San Francisco wrote a very clear letter, much like those apostles did in the Council of Jerusalem, explaining that, that she will not be admitted to Holy Communion until she changes her mind and repents, which is what we desire as a church. We want peace. But he didn't just keep the peace, did he? He didn't just keep the peace. And it's going to be hard and it's not easy for some of us to hear that. And it is certainly not going to be easy for that person, that politician, to hear that. And so we have to pray. We have to pray for deep and abiding peace that comes from knowing the Lord and believing in him and trusting in him. This morning, I'm going to pray the Roman Canon, Eucharistic Prayer 1, one of the most ancient prayers of the church. And in that great Eucharistic prayer, we hear the following words, which I will leave with you with this morning. Be pleased to grant her peace. The prayer is talking about the church. Be pleased to grant her peace, to guard, unite, and govern her throughout the whole world. And then later in that same prayer, we hear, order our days in your peace. 
So let's pray that the church would really be granted peace and that our God would guard, unite, and govern her throughout the whole world.